Uh, but we're going to continue in our series of Acts, through the book of Acts, and uh, I will be reading from chapter 4, the first 22 verses. So if you have a, a copy of God's Word, turn there with me. Uh, and as you're turning there, it's helpful as we read this passage, which is the first instance of persecution for the early church that Luke records. It's helpful to remember why Luke is writing this. Luke was a companion of Paul, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he tells us in Luke chapter 1 why he's writing. And he's writing to Theophilus, who's a new believer, a new Christian, and it seems like he's writing to encourage Theophilus in his faith. He's writing to uh, encourage him and to tell what's happening and encourage him that Christianity is true, and that Christianity is the real religion, that Jesus is true and that he is real. And so as we look at the the persecution that the church faces, we think about it through this lens, we could say that Luke is encouraging, he's trying to encourage new believers um, by assuring them that, yes, the gospel is offensive to a lot of people, and a lot of people will come against the gospel and they don't like to hear it. But that doesn't mean that we've made the wrong choice, and that doesn't mean that we're following a false savior. It actually means that the gospel is true, um, and that we're on the right path. So uh, follow along with me as I read from the book of Acts. You can read it on the screen with me, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. As they were speaking, and the they is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? 
For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more or to speak to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God for help. Father, if you are not with us today, uh, then we are wasting our time. Um, And if you don't speak to us through your word today, then I'm up here for no reason. So we ask that you would show up and we ask that you would speak by your Holy Spirit. Um, Convict our hearts and encourage us. Give us confidence in you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you were here last week, or even if you weren't, I'll fill you in. Um, You heard the story that Jason told at the end of his sermon of a man named Robert Smith, who was giving the commencement speech at Morehouse College to over 400 a graduating class of about 400. And in this commencement speech, he declared that he was going to forgive the entire debt, or he was going to pay, excuse me, he was going to pay the debt of the entire graduating class, a total of about $400 million. Good news, right? I would love to have been in that graduating class. Um, But what was good news to this graduating class upset a lot of people. A lot of people were kind of scandalized and tripped up by this. It's not fair, they were saying. It's not fair. A lot of other people worked really hard and saved up a lot of money. Where's, you know, where is it for them? These students should have paid it themselves. Um, and the point of that story was just to say that grace is offensive to some people. Grace is offensive. And because the gospel is a message of grace, the gospel is offensive to a lot of people. It's offensive because it's so inclusive, because it says that all the student debt would be paid, because grace says that our sins are forgiven. But the gospel is also offensive, and this is what we see in the passage that I just read. The gospel is also offensive because it's exclusive, because it says that there is salvation in no other name than in the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel is offensive people don't like it. And this is why Peter and John are arrested. This is why they're put in prison by these religious leaders. And this is a fact that you will see over and over again in the, in the gospel, the gospels and in the book of Acts as you continue to read. When the gospel is preached, opposition comes. When the gospel is preached, opposition comes. It happens over and over again. Just keep reading. And today, the culture, as the culture that we live in, 
becomes increasingly hostile to Jesus. And as more and more people even just ignore Jesus completely or water down the gospel, we need to hear stories like this because they challenge us and they encourage us to keep walking and holding fast to the truth of who Jesus is. So here's the main idea that I'm working with today. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. What we see in Acts chapter 4 is that God providentially uses opposition to the gospel to grow his church. God providentially uses opposition to grow his church. And he does this in two ways, by revealing the truth and by revealing unbelief. By revealing the truth and by relieving, revealing unbelief. So, let's look at the first point. How does uh, persecution or opposition to the gospel help the truth to be seen? Well, one reason is because Jesus said it would happen. It proves the point of Jesus. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, uh, verses 9 through 13. He says to his disciples, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness about, <clears throat> to bear witness before them. Sound familiar, right? It's exactly what's happening. And Jesus continues. He says, "The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the apostles weren't surprised by this. And we shouldn't be surprised either when people reject the message of Jesus. And when our efforts to spread the gospel are met with opposition or even hatred. Because this opposition is the effort of Satan, the kingdom of Satan, to try and hinder the spread of the gospel. But while it does that, it actually confirms the truth of the matter. John Calvin says it this way. He says, opposition to the gospel is like a seal that confirms and ratifies the teaching of the apostles. So the conflict that Peter and John and other apostles experienced, and the conflict that we will experience today, allowed them, and it will allow us, to share bold testimony about what we have seen and what we have heard. They weren't making this up. This is what they had experienced. Think about it this way. If, if the message of the resurrection, the message of Jesus, was made up by the apostles, why would they have endured being thrown in jail, being outcast by their own people, by their own religious leaders, being willing to be mocked and beaten and even martyred for their own faith? If this was all a sham, They wouldn't have done that. They would have given up. And that's what the religious leaders were hoping would happen. They were hoping that we just throw these guys in prison, threaten them, you know, threaten to cut them off from the community, and they'll give it all up. But actually the opposite that happened, because the gospel is true, because Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that's what Luke records in verse 4. Did you catch that? He said, but many of those who heard the word, believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The kingdom of God continued to grow. 
That's almost 2,000 people added to their number in the spite of opposition. So we could also ask, why does the world hate disciple, the disciples so much? Why does the world hate Christianity so much? And Jesus, again, explains this and kind of pulls back the curtain on what's really going on. And he says this in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Opposition is normal for the followers of Christ. It's because when we are saved and we are joined to Christ, we are united with him, we receive what is his. This means we receive his righteousness, his perfect record, his holiness. But it also means that we receive his reputation in the world. We don't get the glory without the suffering. We don't get one without the other. It's like the line of the song we just sang. Christ is mine forevermore. There's that line, one with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. So when we today face opposition, rather than discouraging us, if we think about it this way, it can actually encourage us because it means that we're speaking the real gospel. If the gospel was sugar-coated, diluted, watered down, it's, and it's not offensive, we wouldn't be opposed for it. So, this week or this month, as you try to witness to Christ in the workplace, think about it this way. Pray for the Lord to work in the hearts of the people. Pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be on you. And be confident, remain confident that Christ is with you. And don't be surprised if people don't want to hear what you have to say. Um, Carl just mentioned the team that's leaving this week to go to the Czech Republic. Um, a country that, if you didn't know, is over 90% atheist. So, team, as you go and as you minister alongside the missionaries there and you come back in a couple weeks, um, what if the only report you have to give is, well, every time, every chance we shared the gospel with somebody, they rejected Christ to our face? It should be disheartening that people are rejecting Christ. That's not a good thing. But it's not on you to do the work. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. And we can remain confident that um, this actually means that the gospel is true and that we should consider it joy to, to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Because they rejected him, they will reject us as well. So, that's how the first point, how... Um, Opposition has revealed the truth. Second point, the opposition to the gospel reveals unbelief. Opposition reveals unbelief. So let me explain what I mean. Look at who arrests Peter and John. It's the religious elite, the religious leaders. And Luke names two of them, at least two of them in particular, Annas and Caiaphas. Um, then these two men are also mentioned by 
the Apostle John um, specifically. And these were the two men that tried and arrested, crucified Jesus himself. And they asked Peter and John, they said, under whose power or by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter replies, and I'm paraphrasing here, do you want to know whose name, who's, by whose authority this happened? It's by the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you killed, and whom God raised from the dead. So the issue, the issue at the heart of these religious leaders was power. It was authority. And after consulting with one another, they charged Peter and John to teach no longer. Don't teach anyone else in the name of Jesus. They didn't tell them don't continue to do miracles and things like that. They said don't teach in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of their opposition. They couldn't deny the miracle. The guy was standing right in front of them. But what they could not handle was the authority of Jesus challenging their own. So they tried to stop the message of the gospel. The religious leaders are rejecting Jesus. They're not just rejecting the disciples. And that's exactly what Peter says when he quotes from Psalm 118, which we read in our call to worship. He says, Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected. And he says, you are the builders and you are rejecting Jesus. And he is the only way to salvation. So these religious leaders had, had looked at Jesus and they said, no thanks. And they said, kill him. Um, and Peter, Peter brings this up again, this verse uh, in his epistle that he writes, the epistle of 1 Peter. Uh, and he, he kind of explains a little bit more. And he says, for it stands in Scripture, and this is 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9. Uh, he, Peter says, it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. People trip up over Jesus because they don't believe in Jesus. He's the indispensable foundation of Christianity and the gospel. And people today, just like these religious leaders, are offended by him. And the issue is unbelief. Tim Keller says it this way, uh, and it's really, really helpful and really insightful. He says, kind of gives the definition of unbelief. He says, unbelief is not the lack of something in their hearts. It's not the lack of faith. Um, It's the presence of something else. There's a positive force at work in the hearts of unbelievers. There is something within our hearts that hates the message of Jesus Unbelief is the presence of a force that recoils at the message of Jesus. So in other words, there's something going on in the heart, in the religious leaders and in our hearts. Um, And it's something that makes them recoil at the message of Jesus. And it has to do with power and authority and the claims that Jesus is making on their lives. It's the presence of an idol of power and control. And Luke kind of gives us a clue into this uh, when he tells us who these men are. He mentions the Sadducees in particular uh, and all of these religious elders. Who were the Sadducees? Who were these religious leaders? Well, they were the, they were the elites. They were the top class. And they had gotten there 
because they had made deals with the Roman Empire to secure positions of power for themselves. They said, if we're going to survive, we got to get in line with these people and make deals behind the table so that we can remain in influence and in positions of power. So the problem is a power struggle. And that's why the religious leaders hated Jesus, because they wanted to call the shots. They wanted to be king. But Jesus came and he proclaimed, I am Lord, I am king. And it's not them, it's not us. People don't like Jesus because he challenges our authority. He makes demands on us. And this is why the resurrection is so important to the message of the gospel. is because it means that Jesus is alive. And Jesus is God. And what does a living God do? A living God makes demands on us. The false idols and gods that we worship are made in our own image and after our own likeness, and they don't challenge us. But a living God will challenge us and make demands. That means he gets to call the shots. And that means we have to bend the knee to that. And we have to give up our own authority and submit to him and not ourselves. We have to repent and we have to believe that he is Lord and that he is the only way to salvation. Peter couldn't be any clearer when he says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the Greek phrase here is emphatic. The English kind of smooths it out because it's really wooden and it's hard to translate. Um, but there's a double negative, which in, in the Greek actually emphasizes the, the negativity of the point that he's trying to say. Um, so if we were kind of, if I were to render it in English as best I could, I'd say, Peter is saying, there is not in any other, no one, salvation. You can't get any clearer or more offensive or exclusive than that. And the phrase immediately, <clears throat> immediately following that, he follows that up with, he explains it. He says, for, because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is, means that Jesus is not just optional. He's not a nice add-on. He's it. Because he is the only way of salvation that has been given. And this is the good news. That there even has been a way of salvation given among men by which we can be saved. And it's the only way that we must be saved. Because we could not ascend to God the Father, because we could not restore the world and make it how it was supposed to be and fix it, God came down. God so loved, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father gave himself in the Son to restore the world. The status quo as after Adam and Eve was brokenness. The world is not how it's supposed to be. And God has come into the world and is at work now in Christ, in the Spirit, to restore the world. Sin turned the world upside down. God is at work right now to turn it right side up. If you say it another way, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, disrupts the status quo. The gospel disrupts the status quo.
And he does so in the very best way. Because, like I said, the status quo right now is fallenness. It's brokenness. But God is at work to set the world to rights. In the words of C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is on the move. God is on the move. And the disruption actually points to that. It means that God is on the move, building his kingdom and remaking the world and turning it right side up in spite of the powers that come to work against it. If you keep reading the book of Acts, you see this disruption that the gospel brings over and over again. In Acts 19, we see an illustration um, of this. Luke tells a story, uh, records the story of when Paul has gone into the city of Ephesus, and he's been there for a while teaching and preaching. And what happens? Well, Luke tells us about it. Um, I'll read a few verses in Starting in Acts 19, verse 21, Luke writes, About that time there arise no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. They had been making money off of the idolatry. Uh, and he continues, he says, You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many away, a great many people away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only to this trade of ours that it may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great Artemis, the goddess, may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So what do they do? They revolt. They riot in the streets because the gospel is turning everything on its head, and they're losing power. They're losing wealth. They're losing control. This is what happens when the kingdom of God grows. The kingdom of Satan rises against it because the gospel means that the thrones of our idols are overturned. But this doesn't just happen on a large scale like in Ephesus or on a political scale like in Jerusalem with these religious leaders. It happens in our own hearts. We don't like it when our authority is challenged. We buck up and kick against the pricks. But why? Because we like to be in control. And why do we like to be in control? Well, I think it goes back to Genesis, to the hearts of humans at the beginning when they were tempted to be like God. We want to be gods for ourselves. And in a world today that has fallen, you can see this manifest itself, when we feel like we have to fix the problems, we want to remake the world as we want it so that we don't feel pain anymore, so that we don't have to suffer we want to fix it. Even as Christians, we, we can still struggle with this. We know the world is not like it's supposed to be, and we try to make it ourselves. We try to be our own saviors. Um, and it's too often, though, even as Christians, that we don't want the solution that God offers because God off- the solution that God offers had to go through the cross first. So we settle for 
smaller fixes that leave us in control. We want redemption, but we want it on our terms, without suffering and without opposition. If we had it our way, we would run away from opposition, run away from conflict. But the gospel says that we ourselves are part of the problem, and we can't fix it. We can't be our own savior. And the reason that we don't like Jesus so much is that we want to save ourselves. Because Jesus makes the demand that when we follow him, we must take up our cross and die to ourselves. In the words of the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Jesus bids a man follow him, he bids him come and die. Who wants to die? Right? Not much. Not many of us. But the issue is that redemption, true redemption does not happen on our terms. It happens on God's terms. And he has made his terms very, very clear. That salvation only comes in Jesus Christ alone. Because it can only come in Jesus Christ alone. Because Jesus alone has done everything that is necessary. He has worked salvation through his death and resurrection. And he will come again one day to restore the world and complete what he is doing, and the world will be right side up again. And on that day, every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So until that day, we wait, and we remain confident in who Jesus is, and we pray for boldness as we continue to witness and know and we trust that God is still at work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending your son, for giving yourself um, and saving us. We pray and we ask for confidence as we continue to give witness to Jesus Christ uh, in the world. Give us boldness, give us confidence, give us the words to say, and help us to rely not on ourselves, but on your Holy Spirit, for you have promised to be with us. Convince our hearts of the truth of this gospel that we would go out from here today and tell people of what we have seen and what we have heard. And as we worship uh, now and as we give our money, um, you are Lord even of our money, even of our finances. And we um, worship you with them and we give back. And we ask, Father, for generous hearts that will worship you with everything that we have. Bless these gifts God, for the building of your kingdom and not ours. Amen.